This is the UU Perspective with your host, Sharon Merrill. This is episode 43 of the UU Perspective podcast, where you hear weekly interviews from Unitarians and Unitarian Universalists that are changing the world. Whether you're already a member or a seeker exploring the faith, there is something here for everyone. So as you sit, walk, jog, or drive, enjoy the conversations you're about to hear. Hey everyone, before we get into this week's episode, I just wanted to thank you for your support over almost now a year of podcasting, The UU Perspective, and I just wanted to let you know that there is now a way for you to support the show monetarily. If you would like to become a patron of The UU Perspective, you can go to patreon.com slash uuperspective, and Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and you can give at any level starting at a dollar on up. Depending on what level you choose, you will also receive some rewards for that monetary monthly patronage. And also there are goals that I want to meet and you will see those on the right hand side of the page. And some of these involve creating new original music for the show, along with creating a virtual workforce that will help me edit and produce the show. So if you are interested, I encourage you to even go to our website, uuperspective.com, and you can just tap on the, click on the Patreon button that will be on the right-hand side of the page. So again, I appreciate your support. And at this time, if you want to become a patron, please visit patreon.com slash UU Perspective. And also, if any of you use Live 365, we now are on that station as a radio station, and it is continuous episodes going from one to the next. And um, it, I'm new to this myself, and I don't know if you can pick specific episodes, but it's just kind of, it loops all the episodes that I have on there. And there's um, 37 of the 43 episodes that are up there at at this time. So uh, please visit that if you're into and subscribe to Live 365. All right, so today we're going to have a part two. We had Valerie White last week, and um, after we were off air, we were discussing the fact that she is involved with um, secular organizations for sobriety. Uh, She is 28 years sober and really enjoys talking about this topic, especially uh, at a time when, 28 years ago, she had hit her bottom, but yet found AA was not quite what she wanted because of there being so much reference uh, religiously, especially inside of the steps, the steps, the 12 steps, and seven of those 12 steps have a reference to to God, a higher power, or some, you know, religious uh, 
identity to it. So she felt the need to find something that fit with her atheist beliefs. And she found this organization, and she's going to talk a bit about that, and also let you know other organizations that you could be a part of inside of if you're trying to become sober, or if you're inside of being sober. And it's just a great wealth of information. So let's get to it. Oh, and if you want to check out any information about Valerie, you can listen to previous episode number 42 for the introduction of uh, her information and her bio. And also you'll hear her favorite quotes and the answer to the big question at the end of number 42. So let's get to it. And here's Valerie. Welcome back, Valerie. And if you could take a moment and tell us a bit about the Secular Organizations for Sobriety and um, a little bit about your journey. Well, let me give you a little background first. Um, First off, I'm a sober alcoholic. I've been sober 28 plus years now. And I was practicing law in Vermont at the time that I got sober. So about, let's see, in September of 1987, I was attending the annual fall meeting of the Vermont Bar Association, and I went to a, um, a workshop on recovery for lawyers. And because, you know, and I was hungover, <laughs> as almost always <laughs> in those days. And so I went to this workshop, and there was a panel of, uh, an internist, the doctor that is, who specialized in treating alcoholism and alcoholics, and I and the psychiatrist who worked at the Brattleboro Retreat, who specialized in treating alcoholics, and um, a lawyer in recovery who described himself as Exhibit A, as an example of what drinking lawyers would be like. So I listened to them talk for the whole workshop, and they talked about um, the dynamics of the alcoholic family and the various roles that people play and enabling, and they talked about uh, scoring um, sort of tests to decide whether or not you're um, dependent on a substance, and all that was very interesting, of course, but what I'm thinking sitting there is, all right, so what, what do you actually do about it? So, they, of course, they talked about Alcoholics Anonymous almost exclusively as the route to recovery. And I'm an atheist. I've been an atheist all my life. And, you know, at least half of the 12 steps, you could argue seven twelfths of them, make specific reference to, um, to religion, to, to belief in a higher power. Uh, and, and I had felt discouraged by this for some time. So finally I said, I raised my hand in a question and answer session, and I said, so you talk about a lot of different things, but one thing you haven't talked about is what do you do about it? How do you deal with a person who's got a substance abuse issue? And, and one of them said, um, you... Um, you give them peer support and belief in a higher power. And I felt like somebody who was, you know, going down for the third time and reaching for the, for the 
for the life ring and it wasn't within my reach. And I, so I made one last try and I said, well, what do you do with a person who's a loner and an atheist? And they said, wait till they're not. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Which frankly wasn't helpful. Right. <laughs> exactly. And so, so I did not um, walk away from that meeting thinking, okay, I'm going to get sober now. I basically felt dissed and um, hopeless and so on. Well, as it happened, a few weeks later, I woke up um, with the hangover <laughs> and some very vague recollections of some really stupid things I had done the night before. But I'd been sort of in blackout, so I didn't really have a clear recollection, but it was kind of scary. I was walking out towards my car, and a voice in my head, my own voice, said, I can't do this anymore. I can't do this anymore. And so I called a lawyer friend of mine that I knew to be sober in AA, and I arranged to go see her that lunchtime. And she said, you know, there's two ways to do what you're trying to do. There's the hard way, which is what you're doing, and then there's the easy way, which is an AA. And she said, why don't you come to a meeting with me tonight? And I said, I can't. I can't go to an AA meeting. Half the people there will be clients that I sent to AA in my paternalistic way, and she said, oh, it won't be like that, you'll see. Well, I was resistant. One of the reasons why I was resistant, of course, was the whole resistance thing, but also, it, quite frankly, it had been so long since it was safe for me to go anywhere at night, uh, because I'd be too drunk to drive, uh, that it didn't occur to me that, you know, now that I wasn't drinking, which I hadn't now for about three days, and was feeling like death warmed over, you wouldn't believe uh, I mean, it was like the king of all hangovers. Mm. That first night, by the way, that I didn't drink, I should have been in treatment. I should have been in, in detox. There's just no question. But, of course, I didn't look into that because that would be admitting to people that I had a problem and I wanted to keep it a big, deep, dark secret. Mm -hmm. And I lay there staring up into the darkness and seeing these big sort of mask-like colorful faces floating over the bed in, in a kind of a scary way. And fortunately, I knew enough about withdrawal to know what was happening. So I wasn't scared. You know, I didn't, I didn't think I was losing my mind. I knew this was withdrawal. But still, it was not pleasant. And occasionally, I'd drift off, and then I'd wake myself up by twitching. So God knows how close to having actual convulsions or seizures I was. But um, anyway, I got through it, and, and as I say, three days later, I called my friend, and she said, come with me, we're meeting, and ultimately I went. And I have to say, it was really nice. These were warm, friendly, helpful, supportive people who had been where I was and wanted to be, help, wanted to be there for me, and lots of people offered me their phone numbers if I wanted to sponsor or wanted support. And that was nice. But one thing, uh, about the same time that all this was happening, I was the plaintiff in a First Amendment 
case, um, that is not the lawyer plaintiff, but an actual plaintiff, the party plaintiff, to remove the lighted Christmas tree, lighted cross from the Christmas tree on the courthouse lawn of the county where I practice. And this, this um, perfectly legitimate First Amendment constitutional issue um, got a lot of negative pushback from the folks in the area. So there was one time when I did go to an AA meeting where the at that time, at least in Vermont, AA meetings often ended with the Lord's Prayer. Mm-hmm. And the person who was can, not the Serenity Prayer, which they also did, but this was the Lord's Prayer, which is not unsectarian. So this, the convener of the meeting looked straight across the circle of people at me at the end when we were standing there holding hands and said, Valerie, would you lead us in the Lord's Prayer? <laughs> Well, I was so taken aback that I I couldn't I I couldn't function. I just sort of stood there with my mouth open. I mean, if I'd had my wits about me, I'd have said I passed or right. no thanks or something. But I just boggled, you know. And that so he saw that I was not responding, and so he just started it himself. But after that, I heard people saying. Did you hear what he did to her? That was server right, that person who's trying to take our Christmas tree away and everything. And um, So I think that was the last AA meeting I went to. I do have to say that I got a couple, I got at least one phone call from a very nice man who didn't know me and who hadn't been at that meeting, who w- was concerned that I might lose my recovery over that, and which was sweet of him. And I, I didn't lose my recovery over it. And shortly after that, I found uh, Secular Organizations for Sobriety, which is a non-12-step, non-religious um, recovery group for folks like me. And that, although there weren't any local meetings, just having that national organization to lean on was a, a big um, improvement. So I started meetings, had them in my office. For quite some time, um, and I write a column for their newsletter, and I've been doing that since, well, you know, almost 30 years now. Um, I'm on their advisory council. How did you find the association? Uh, through um, through the um, Council for Secular Humanism. I was sort of pretty active in the uh, humanist movement, and so I stumbled on them that way. But there are a number of them. I mean, there's Smart Recovery, there's Life Ring, there's Secular Organizations for Sobriety, there's um, uh, Rational Recovery. So SOS is not alone in the secular recovery field. So you set out to search for something more secular, and then you start your own meetings. And how many were uh, attending, like, your first meeting? Oh, it was very small. Vermont, you know, like three or four, maybe at the tops. Um, Vermont is a very small state, and, of course, secular sobriety is not widely known. Um, There's an issue with secular sobriety. Well, I shouldn't say that. Let's back up. There's an issue with AA in that it's been common, it was common in the past for courts who were dealing with somebody who was going on to probation because of an alcohol-related um, crime 
to refer people and require it as a condition of probation that they should attend Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, which is, in my opinion, completely unconstitutional because um, there's no getting around it. While AA will tell you that they accommodate the, um, the atheist and agnostic, and there's even a chapter in the big book about um, the atheist and agnostic, fundamentally, it, <laughs> does it make any sense to say to somebody that your higher power doesn't have to be God, it can just be a doorknob? (laughs) Like, what good is a doorknob? Right, right. So, um, so really, it's, it's not secular. Right. And the courts don't have any business sending people to religious organizations. It's unconstitutional. How have you made... Uh, how is it run differently, say, than AA? What what is what are the components of it? Well, peer support, of course, is this similar to AA, and the focus of secular organizations for sobriety is what they call the sobriety priority, which is that keeping yourself clean and sober has to be your first priority. That nothing else really matters. Um, because if you're not clean and sober, then everything else goes down the tubes. So the sobriety priority is one of the focuses of uh, secular organizations for sobriety. And, and there's, there's, I mean, there's spinoffs, there's Life Ring, like I said, there's, there's a Smart Recovery, um, there's Women for Sobriety, which is uh, uh, more secular than AA, and, and of course, devotes itself primarily to women. Mm-hmm. Are, are there any aspects that are similar to how AA meetings are run? Not only that it's peer support, that it's lay-led, that it's um, intended to help folks have a support net. Mm-hmm. But incidentally, you, you should know that there isn't a lot of research on the effectiveness of Alcoholics Anonymous because it's anonymous. So it's really hard to keep track, but the studies that have been done, and you can find this if you if you look uh, even on Wikipedia, there's an article called "Effectiveness of Alcoholics Anonymous." It isn't very. It's a revolving door. People come in, they go back out again. Um, al- alcoholism is a chronic, relapsing disease, and Alcoholics Anonymous just isn't very effective at treating it. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying necessarily that one of the secular alternatives is better, but it's certainly better for folks like me for whom a religious-based group is not helpful. Right, right. But another one of the issues that I've seen with Alcoholics Anonymous was brought to my attention very forcibly in a workshop I went to once um, that was held at the local Fenway Health Center that's here in Boston, Uh, which brought together treating professionals in the areas of both uh, recovery, substance abuse recovery, and survivors of sexual assault, um, domestic violence, and childhood sexual abuse. And, of course, there are a lot of, of parallels in these two populations, and they overlap a lot. There's a lot of women who are survivors have substance abuse issues and vice versa. Um, 
So they overlap a lot, and there, there are similarities in the treatment response, too, in terms of peer support, you know, groups, and so on. But there are a couple of really important differences. And one of them is that most of the survivor stuff, the sexual abuse, sexual assault, et cetera, stuff, is, has a feminist empowerment model. The idea here is to, to strengthen women, to give them power. And the idea in a lot of the recovery treatment community is surrender. It's one of the 12 steps. Turned our, our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Him, get it? Yeah. <laughs> and, um, so there's even a, in Boston, there's a treatment facility whose letterhead says at the top, we believe in surrender. And that just doesn't fit with a feminist empowerment model. It really doesn't. And also, it is so common for more or less long-term AA attenders, male ones, to hit on new female attenders. That there's even a word for it. They call it 13th stepping. And it's, it's a vulnerable woman who's very likely also to be a survivor, who's struggling to hold on to early sobriety, who gets hit on at an AA meeting, is not happy mm-hmm. or safe. Right. So with this going on, I mean, are you involved at all with um, any of the women's groups? You mean that, like Women like, for Sobriety? Uh, yeah, yeah. No, I, I haven't had much communication with them. I mean, I look at their website every now and then uh, because, well, I don't know, it just didn't move me particularly. I don't have any beef with them, but um, I tend to avoid um, segregating people by gender. <laughs> okay. It's sort of against my principle. Sure. So, so it, wasn't, it just wasn't for me. But I can imagine that it might be um, feel very reassuring and safe to women in some circumstances, and it's so more power to them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. So over the years now, how many years have you been sober? Uh, October of 87. And so, in, in uh, yeah, it would be 28 years. Nice. Very good. That's great. Another thing I want to say uh, is, is about openness, about recovery. I said earlier in this conversation that I was not about to find myself into um, a detox because I didn't want anybody to know. But that feeling did not last very long. And I decided that if people were going to have alternatives, if people were going to discover that, that a high-quality recovery was possible, that they needed to have role models, that, that, it, was, that it was necessary for, um, for me to, to stand up and say, I'm a sober alcoholic. And so I've done that ever since, um, almost, you know, almost from the beginning. And it's been uh, very rewarding. I remember one time a witness whom I had never met before, um, who was a law student, 
she was testifying for a friend in a divorce case, and she was a student at Vermont Law School. Came After I'd finished preparing her for her testimony, said, by the way, she said, you and I've never met before, but I want you to know that you saved my life. And I said, what? How, how can this be if I've never even met you? And she said, I was struggling with alcoholism. I was scared to tell anybody because I thought if I if anybody knew I'd never they'd never let me take the bar exam. My whole dream would be um, lost. But I knew I was going down the tubes. And finally I confided in a friend and she said, Oh, let me tell you about Valerie White. And she told her that I was sober, that I was open about my sobriety, that my judges knew, that my clients knew. And it gave her the will and the hope that she needed to cope, to go forward with recovery. And she's a lawyer today. Oh, wow. That's fantastic. But, uh, yeah. So so I think there can't be, um, I, I think anonymity is, is not helpful, frankly. Inside of uh, SOS, is that anonymity something that you, you know, abide by like AA well, does? Sure. I mean, it's, it's not my business to tell other people who was at a meeting, right? It's their business. But, but the emphasis that AA makes on keeping your anonymity is you're not supposed to say, I'm an AA member. not supposed to say that you're, that you're sober in AA. That's not helpful in my mind. And actually, there's a growing movement here in Massachusetts and a wonderful movie, which I commend to you, which is called The Anonymous People, which advocates um, that people step out of the shadows and say, this is not cause for um, shame. And this is not something that needs to be hidden. And recovery is something to be shouted about. So it's, it's a wonderful movie and a wonderful movement. I went, when they showed it at my Unitarian Universalist congregation, I went because it's not, I was afraid that this movie was going to be about how wonderful Alcoholics Anonymous Recovery was from the title, right? And I, was, I wanted to go there to be a voice for the other position that there can be high-quality recovery without 12 steps and, and, and so on. But when I got there, it was all about, you know, step out of the shadows. Embrace your success. Tell people about it. And that was, I said, you're preaching to the choir. That's me. It's been me for almost 30 years. So how have you felt the group has supported you in that recovery process along the way? What's the biggest thing that's impacted you? Well, writing the column has has been um, a thing that keeps my head on straight. You know, I mean, it makes me think. If I have to do this every quarter, uh, it makes me think about recovery, and it keeps me from thinking, oh, well, you know, I could have a drink now and then, by now, <laughs> which I, I really can't. So Jim Christopher, who is the founder of um, of Secular Organizations for Sobriety, has written several books which I found extremely useful um, early on. One is called How to Stay Sober. That was his first book, I think. One called Unhooked. And one about uh, nicotine addiction called Escape from Nicotine Country, which 
which I've, I've, I found those books extremely helpful. I have to tell you a funny story about how to stay sober. I lent it to somebody um, a while ago, my copy, and it never came back. And I thought, well, bummer, I guess I should order another one. And then I never did anything about it. And I went to the library book sale, the library used book sale, and I stumbled upon a copy of the book. I said, oh, great, I can buy this. I now I'll have my library complete again. And I picked it up and I opened it, and there was my return address label stuck to the inside cover. Oh, no. <laughs> person I lent it to had given it to my library book. Oh, my gosh. So I, told, I told the nice ladies there that this was my book, and they didn't charge me for it. Which was well, that's nice. <laughs> yeah. And... Inside of writing your articles, did you say you do those quarterly? Yes, the, art, the newsletter comes out every quarter. Okay. And what is it, like an inspirational article? What are you addressing when you're writing the articles? Oh, uh, well, it's funny. When Jim first asked me um, to, to write for the newsletter many years ago, um, he asked me if I would write a column for the woman alcoholic. Well, you'll have gathered by now that I don't like to discriminate based on gender, um, even if it's sort of supportive and sweet and all that. Um, I, and I told him I wouldn't, but I'd write a column. You know, I would write for him, but I wouldn't write for the woman alcoholic. And he said, that's all right, so do that. And so I did, and I have. And the column of the, the title of the column is The Wind Beneath My Wings. Oh, nice. Um, and uh, which is, comes from a song which I was always very fond of. I write about whatever happens to have come to my attention. If it uh, might be about legalizing drugs, or it might be about um, a dream that I, a drinking dream that I had. It's kind of a lot of people when they get sober uh, in early sobriety, but but not always early or not that early, will drink will drink in their dreams and feel really horrible that they've slipped and wake up with a start thinking, oh, my God, I've ruined everything, and then discover it was all in their dreams. So I've, I've written about that. I've written about thinking about drinking. I've written, you know, anything that occurs to me that seems that it would be of interest to my fellow sufferers. What has been uh, the most difficult time or, or- difficult thing about staying sober would you say um well those first three days were hell on wheels i'll tell you um and it's that's a funny funny i'm finding that question difficult to answer because i didn't have that really hard a time um i was extremely lucky um they say in aa you know that you've got to hit bottom before you can recover and well, I had what's known as a high bottom. I hadn't been sued for malpractice or uh, charged with driving under the influence, although heaven knows I drove under the influence often enough. Um, I never went bankrupt or missed a court appearance or, or did anything, you know, really, really awful, although there were a lot of embarrassing things that, that happened to me. But, um, and... And beyond the first few days when I was so miserable, um, I once I got wrapped around the idea that I just couldn't drink, that I just could not drink, 
um, things just got better from there. So it, I was lucky. I was extremely lucky. Do you feel like you put something in its place to help fill that void? Uh, no, I don't. Uh, I mean, a lot of people think they didn't. They do that with AA. Um, but no, I, I just, no, it, it didn't feel like that to me. Okay. So in ways that you, where you used to be drinking and, you know, if you were at conferences or meetings and things, and now that you haven't done that over many years, how has it been different in attending those uh, meetings, conferences, and things like that? Um, well, I remember when I went to Russia um, on a trip a few years ago, I had a terrible time convincing the Russians that I really didn't want any alcohol. I finally started telling them that I was allergic because telling them that I, that I simply didn't drink, just they, were, they didn't understand that. They just couldn't wrap their heads around it. So I had to you know, turn my wine glass upside down so nobody would pour anything in it or um, and, you know, put my hand over it if somebody would hold the bottle over. Oh, come on, a little bit won't hurt you. Uh, so that that was kind of awkward. But um, I, I just got used to the idea that I drank seltzer instead of wine, and that was all there was to it. Did your, but did your productivity and things like that, did that have an impact and improve and everything? Did you see a difference oh, there? Of course. Yeah. There was so much more. I felt like um, there was so much more of me protruding from um, like an iceberg from the ocean than there had been uh, while I was drinking. There was just, you know, hours at night that I was actually functional, that I could do stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I used to, right before I quit drinking, I would go to my then boyfriend's house and have what we called attitude adjustment hour um, and have several stiff Canadian clubs with a twist of women. And then I would go home. My mother lived with me at the time. She was also a drinking alcoholic. And uh, she would have made dinner and we would have wine with dinner. And then I would sit in my chair reading my book, smoking cigarettes and drinking. Um, until I was ready to go to bed, and then I would close the book or put the book upside down because I was in those days not a, 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 <laughs> a bookmark user, which I've become since. Um, and then in the morning, I'd get up with a hangover, and I'd pick up my book, and I'd have to page backwards many, many, many pages until I found a place where I could remember having read it. Mm, yeah, and so I mean, those those chunks of time after dinner were just lost. They were just wasted. They had no no reality, really. Right, right. Wow. Can you name one thing that might not have happened had you not become sober that had a great impact on many people that you know? being sober really created an opportunity for? Well, hopefully. Well, all right. Um, I had a client once. This was after I got sober and after I'd started my SOS meeting. Uh, he came to me with a citation that he'd gotten the night before. It was the 
17th of March, St. Patty's Day, and he'd been out drinking green beer, and he got busted for DUI on the way home. And he brought me this citation and said to me, represent me, I got a DUI, and it was going to be his third DUI. And that meant mandatory time to serve in Vermont at the time and a long license suspension. And I said, yes, I'll represent you. I said, but you have got to stop drinking. You're getting too old for this. This is not okay. You have, and he had a, he had a four-year-old daughter and a wife, and um, and I, I just ripped them up one side of the other. And for, for years after that, he called me on the 17th of March every single year and said, hi, it's me again. I just wanted to tell you I'm still here and still sober. Wow. So, yes. Uh, and then I already told you the story about the woman who said I saved her life. So, right. Wow. So, yeah. Amazing. Um, mm. And, of course, the, the fact is that if I hadn't gotten sober, I probably wouldn't be alive. Because, you know, alcoholism oh wow well this is just this has been really such an interesting uh conversation and i really appreciate you sharing this with us and where can people find out more about this well uh i have open on my computer right now um the website for sos which is sossobriety.org I have also opened the website for LifeRing Secular Recovery, which is LifeRing.org. Um, then there's Smart Recovery, S-M-A-R-T, all caps, uh, recovery. I don't have that one open, but if, you, if anybody Googled it, they'd find it. Um, and as I recommended, uh, Jim Christopher's books, um, James Christopher's books, uh, How to Stay Sober and Unhook, those are good resources. All right, great. Well, thanks so much, Valerie, for sharing all that information to us. You're very welcome, and thanks for asking me. Thanks so much for listening to the UU Perspective podcast, and I really appreciate the fact that you do take time out of your day to listen, and especially during these holiday seasons right now. And if you will, if you want to be a patron of the show, please go to patreon.com slash perspective, and you can also find the button at the uuperspective.com website and take a look at the different ways you can become a patron on a monthly basis and the different rewards that go along with the level at which you will patronize. You can start at a dollar and go on up from there. I actually had the fun of become a patron, becoming a patron of a favorite show of mine, which is 99% Invisible, a very cool show about oddities in the world that you would just never have known about unless you listen to 99% Invisible. So it gives me a piece of like feeling like an owner of the show, being able to pledge monthly to that that particular podcast. So I encourage you to become a patron of our show of the UU Perspective. If you are so inclined, I would be very much grateful. So again, have a great week and we'll catch you next time on the UU Perspective podcast. Mm-hmm.